You'll never know how much I really love you You'll never know how much I really care Listen Do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, whoa, whoa closer Let me whisper in your ear Say the words I love to hear Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Billy J. Kramer and the wonderful Do You Want to Know a Secret? That is also the title of his fantastic autobiography as well, which we'll be discussing here, as well as a range of tracks from across his career and his fantastic story. Welcome, Billy. Thank you. Nice to, nice to see you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. First of all, um, it'd be great to talk about your autobiography. So it's been out for a couple of years. It's a really great insight into your full life right you know it was something that um, you know I over the years I, I, I put some notes down and funny enough I was doing a show in California Sylvester Stallone's brother said to me you know have you ever thought of writing your autobiography I said well yes and no it's like how do I go about getting somebody to do it with me he said why don't why don't you try Alan Shipton he did a great book on uh, Harry Nielsen and I was a big fan of Harry Nielsen's. And he he wrote the book after Harry Nielsen passed. You know, it was very well acclaimed. And I thought, well, it sounds like he'd be a great guy to do it with. So I emailed him and um, he came back to me and um, said he'd like to do it. So uh, he came over to America and we, we spent time together. We did quite a bit, a bit in New York. He, he came quite a number of times. And then when I was on tour, in England, uh, we met, met in London and we, we uh, got it together. And funny enough, I, I've, I've only recently had the time to sit and read the whole thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to get a lot of facts together, you know. I didn't want a, a book of you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll and 
throwing people under the bus, you know, with, mm. with uh, rock and roll stories. So um, that was my take on doing it, you know. And that's the great thing is that, especially with the internet these days, all it takes is for someone to put anything on their website and then Wikipedia gets hold of it and then it becomes so-called facts when actually it's books like yours that actually set the record straight. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. You know, um, we live in a world now where, unfortunately, you know, you have to be careful. <laughs> you say one way out of place and, yeah, yeah. and you're the worst guy on the planet, you know. <laughs> Not only is the book fantastic for, for people who've followed your journey, it's a great archive and wealth of information for, for the millions of uh, Beatle maniacs out there. I think, is it the forward that basically talks about you seeing the Beatles in 1960 before they went to Hamburg? Yeah, I saw the, I saw the Beatles at, at Litherland Town Hall. That was like the first time I saw the Beatles. To me, that night, it, it was amazing to walk into a, a local ballroom, heads <laughs> open and see Paul McCartney doing a long tall Sally, and I thought, shit. I was a big pop fan. I knew just there and then these guys were going to set the well on fire. They just blew me away, and they still do, and they're still doing it. Now that's the amazing thing. It's all these years later, and they're still the biggest band in the world. They still sell more records. Yeah. They still get spoken to. more. There's always something about the Beatles. It's an amazing story. I'm really glad that I was around to, to share it, you know, and be a a part of it. We opened with Do You Want to Know a Secret. Was it through Brian Epstein that you got that song in, in terms of recording it, or was it through actually through John? When I think about it, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> you know, I'd never thought of a career in show business and what it, what it took, you know, like in the way of like repertoire and finding songs. And I, I, I was with a, a local band uh, about to go to crew. Part of my training for being an engineer Brian came along and made me an offer I couldn't refuse to, to turn a professional. And then he just said to me one day, you know, we're obviously going to go for a record deal and I'd like you to learn this song. And he gave me a, it was a Grundig tape of John Lennon singing, Do You Want to Know a Secret? You know, I only just started with the Dakotas and we rehearsed the song and, and I arranged it the way I recorded it. And we, we did it on stage and I did it. The whole time I was at the Star Club, when I came back, we did the rounds and failed. <laughs> and then I did it with George Martin. And I was very surprised when he, Brian called me a few weeks later and said, they want to release, do you want to know a secret? Wow. It was my first time in the studio. And I, I was like, well, don't you think we should look for a better song? I didn't have a clue. The Beatles had this depth of songwriting ability. Was it a similar case with Bad To Me then? I think the demo for Bad To Me is actually, um, people can hear that now, but I think the, the is it the demo for Do You Want To Know Secret is kind of lost? As far as I know, I mean, you know, it's funny because people ask me, I mean, I don't know whatever happened to that tape, you know, or the lyrics that John wrote in, in the studios. Bad To Me, funny enough, people have asked me over the years, there was no demo. Right. You know, John came to me at my 20th birthday, I was, doing a show with the Beatles in Bournemouth. And he said, I've got a song for you. And when I asked him to play it, he says, no, I'll come and play it next time you're at Abbey Road. I, they were becoming so popular. I, I thought maybe he won't show. And he, he did show and he, at 10 o'clock in the morning and he sat at the piano and he played that to me. Then he said, I want to I wanna run something by you and give me your opinion. 
And it was, I want to hold your hand. I said, can't I have that one? <laughs> and he said, no, it's, we're keeping that for ourselves. People don't realize, but I mean, I learned the song Bad to Me, arranged it, recorded it in a few hours. So it was a really quick process. John was around as well. John was around. I mean, John basically just played us the song, just let us get on with it. Funny enough, it didn't come right away because the backside was, um, I called your name. And I was having a, a discrepancy with George Martin about the key of Bad to Me. He wanted me to do it in the key of I wanted to do it in D. Just wasn't happening. And I said, well, let's go to the backside. And we, we recorded I Call Your Name in about 20 minutes. And I said, we've got two A-sides here. I said, why don't we put this I Call Your Name on? He said, well, it sounds too much like the Beatles. And I said, well, that can't be bad. <laughs> he said, no, you're Billy J. Kramer. And we went back to bed to me. And we changed the key to D. Thankfully, it worked. If you ever leave me, I'll be sad and blue. Don't you ever leave me, I'm so in love with you. The birds in the sky would be sad and lonely if they knew that I'd lost my one and only they'd be sad if you're bad to me. The leaves on the trees would be softly sighing if they heard from the breeze that you Left me crying, they'd be sad Don't be bad to me But I know you won't leave me Cause you told me so And I've no intention of letting you go Just as long as you let me know You won't be bad to me So the birds in the sky won't be sad and lonely Cause they know that I've got my pretty much on, on the par as, as the Beatles at the time, you know, number one hits, um, fans screaming at you, and you were at the same level as, as the Beatles in that early Mersey Beat period. Yeah, well, it was crazy because, you know, I once told my wife the, the story of like going to Manchester on the train and, and I did a TV show called Cynic 6.30. It was at the time of the Perfumo trials that was going on. And I was like throwing files around the studio, pushing cabinets over. And then I got the train back to Liverpool 
to be met with like a thousand kids outside of my parents' house. And it was like my whale tent upside down. It, it took a, quite a while to adjust to it, you know, and um, it was exciting. But at the same time, it was a complete life change. Yeah. And to me, it, it wasn't about the music, which was, was frustrating because mm. you'd go on stage and play your songs and they'd just be screaming the whole time. One of the fascinating things reading the autobiography was that you actually recorded or attempted to record a live album in that period. And we have a, a live version of I Call Your Name, which was on the, the box set of yours from about a decade ago. Yes. But you can hear the, as you're saying, you could hear the fans screaming. Well, do you know that, I mean, that was a, an American tour as well. And funny enough, George Martin said, right. you know, they couldn't do it. We'll be mind doing it with Ron Richards, who produced the Hollies. And we did this tour in the States. It just lay there for years and years and years because the technology wasn't around. And because of today's wonderful technology, when they did the box set, they were able to, to rescue it, you know, which was, which was cool. I call your name. Don't you know I can't take it I don't know who can I'm not gonna make Another kind of man Oh, I can't sleep But just the same I never weep at night Oh, I told you I was doing a session at EMI and John and Paul came and said, we've got this great song, you got to record it. And it was, I'm in love. And we had about 20 minutes recording time left and we just did a rough track. We did two, just two takes of it, which was very rough. I don't know why, but we never finished it. And foremost recorded it and had a hit with it. And I'd forgotten all about it, believe it or not, until I was in a restaurant in New York doing something for EMI, and I hear I'm in love come over the speakers. I, went, ah. I thought, you know, and it's not that bad when I listen to it. In a way, it's one of your famous 
most famous tracks at the moment. You know, I've heard it many times, and it's almost the the way that it sort of stops and you kind of have another go at it that adds to it and, and makes it something a, a bit different now. I think it's a bit different. And there was a lot of talk with, with John saying, like, you sound like Adam Faith, you fool. <laughs> and there was a lot of other things he said, but they didn't put them on it. But that, that's the great thing, is that you get an insight, a little bit like what you get with the Beatles anthology. Sometimes you get that little bit of chat in the studio and, and that adds to it, really. I thought it had a certain something about it, and it was like, I'll be honest, it was more or less live, which was, which was good. Yeah. I think back then, though, we wanted to be everything to be so perfect, whereas I think sometimes it does show a human side when there's flaws, you know. <laughs> I think it's, a, it's cool. Yes. 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 <laughs> One, two, three, four. I'm in love. Hey! Adam Faith, I can't get it, John.
There's a very interesting passage kind of around the, the period where you released I'll Keep You Satisfied. You talked about the fans, but actually the the pressure of someone who a year or so before had been working on the trains, <laughs> you're at the London Palladium on on TV. Everybody watched, uh, you know, the London Palladium shows on TV at the time, and the, the pressure must have been immense. Well, yeah, I mean, all the years, it's only in recent times that I've thought about the amount of pressure that I was under, because firstly, I was under the pressure of turning professional very quickly, having success. And then suddenly, in, the, in less than two years, I was on the Palladium. It's one thing that it doesn't bug me now, but at the time, you know, I did say to Brian, you know, I don't want to do it, Brian. You know, there's people like Sinatra and Julie Garland, and I don't think I'm ready for it. You know, I, I, I mean, I was... I was still very nervous. I was, I was a very quiet guy, believe it or not. And I was very shy. Yeah. I didn't have much to say for myself. I wasn't pushy, you know. A lot of rock and roll people are, and that's, it's never been my nature. You know, I, you know, I'm just like, what you see is what you get. And yeah. more so as I've got older. But at the time, I was, I was very quiet. I was very shy. And, and the thought of doing the palladium in front of all the millions of people, it was scary. to hold you Here I stand with my arms open wide Give me love and remember what I told you I'll keep you satisfied You don't need anybody to kiss you Every day I'll be here by your side Don't go away I'm afraid that I might miss you I'll keep you satisfied you can always get a simple thing like love anytime But it's different with a boy like me and a love like mine So believe everything that I told you And agree that with me by your side You don't need anybody to hold you I'll keep you satisfied You can always get a simple thing like love anytime But it's different with a boy like me and a love like mine So believe everything that I told you And agree that with me by your side You don't need anybody to hold you I'll keep you satisfied Give me love and remember what I told you I'll keep you satisfied 
You've talked about Norman Smith, yes. the engineer and, and later a producer, being very supportive of you as well in that at that time. Yes, Norman. Well, you know, I mean, let's face it, you know, you're, you're this young kid, you've had this success, and then you start thing, to see things that, that you don't like. You see how you, maybe if you did this, it'd be better. And Norman was always like, like with George Martin, you know, because I always looked on George as being like, he, he was like Prince Philip to me. <laughs> and I was sort of like intimidated. Norman used to just say to me, if you don't like it, tell him that with a few harsh words. <laughs> you know, Norman did get me to start standing up for myself. It's like, you know, I, I'd never, yeah. until I recorded the song uh, from a window, which was, which followed Little Children, I'd never really said a lot, but when I did from a window, I, I turned around and said to George, because back then, you know, you never sat in on remixes and things like that. You did it and then you were sent away like bad little boys. But when he sent me the mixer from a window, I said, it's not right. You know, it was the first time I said, this isn't right, George. You know, we need to go in and do it again. And he said, why? I said, because the way Paul McCartney played the piano, and the feel of it just isn't there. To me, the way Paul played it had a certain magic to it, and we have to try and get that onto the record. It was the only one we went in and read it. You had a, a cold when you were recording from a window, and, and Paul McCartney kind of helped you out on a bit of the supporting vocals. On right. Yeah, on the end, yes. Yeah. Late yesterday night, I saw a light shine. I couldn't walk on until you gone from your window. I had to make you mine. I knew you were the one. Oh, I would be glad just to have a love like that. Oh, I would be true. I've got a lot to thank him for because, you know, even when I first got together with the Dakotas, um, John and Paul came to see me rehearse and things like that. Uh, when I did live shows, they would stand at the side of the stage and when I came off, they'd, either, they'd pat me on the back if they didn't think it was any good things. I always say, you know, they gave me a great start. I'll be eternally 
eternally grateful to them, you know. It, you know, it, it's strange because, like, like little children, it's funny because when I did Along the Palladium, I was very, I was upset at the fact that I had a record at number three that I thought would go to number one. It didn't. And I was determined that the next one would. And, you know, I, I didn't know music publishers and people like that. Yet I took it on myself to go to Dakotas when getting together with me and, and trying to create anything. And I took it on myself and I went around to a load of producers and, and found the song that was children. It was the only one that we often like secret, which we'd be, we were doing live. Little children it was the first time that I rehearsed the song with the Dakotas and worked the arrangement out and everything. It was just a matter of George Martin and Norman Smith putting it on tape. Little children that had one of the early pop videos as well. Yes, um, it came about just, just by accident. You know, we happened to be doing a video for the top of the pops, I think it was. Suddenly it just started snowing. I did this thing in the park with kids on roundabouts and going down slides. And, you know, at the time it wasn't selling very well. But when that video was shown, I think the little children sold something like 78,000 copies the next day, which was amazing. Children like you 
Dakotas and the seem to be a bit of a sort of divide between you and them. But with Mick Green, just an, an amazing guitarist joining the group, that seemed to sort of help in a way. Well, you know, the thing is, I would like to have been a member of a band yeah. where we all got together and contributed to doing things. That wasn't the case with the Dakotas. They, as soon as gigs were over, recording sessions, they just went. They never wanted to get together and try and, I was always a, a worker. I wanted to find songs uh, and work with them. And when Mick joined the Dakotas, I think it was the best they ever were. You know, I, I would go to Mick's place in London and um, we'd go over songs together. And uh, that's a great track, you know, that yeah. we did together sneaking around. And funny enough, the amazing thing is, Mick Green to me is still the best rock and roll guitar player ever. My love and you've gotta be nice Stop that crazy Sneaking around on me Well if your conscience Be your guide You know you're wrong Well I'm not gonna stand This messing around too long Well I'm telling you something You ought to know This messing around Just gotta go Because of one of these days You'll up and find me gone well, I'm telling you something you ought to find out Listen to what I've been talking about When you start to cheat on me Fooling around with titties Well, I heard that you've been sneaking around the place Somebody is trying to steal all of us When you start to cheat in a love affair it's not gonna get you anywhere Stop that crazy sneaking around on me Something you ought to find out Listen to what I've been talking about When you start to cheat on me Fooling around with titties Well, I heard that You've been sneaking around the place Somebody is trying to steal our love astray When you start to cheat in a love affair It's not gonna get you anywhere Stop that crazy sneaking around on me Stop that crazy sneaking around on me Stop that crazy sneaking around on me It was Mick and I who put trains and boats and planes together. You know, I was at his apartment and um, there was a bit background special on TV. We recorded it, and it was like a choral version of Trains and Boats and Planes, and Mick and I decided that, you know, we can do that. And we sat up all night and, 
and worked out an arrangement that we could do, you know. And the next day, funny enough, we went into to uh, Manchester Square in London and we saw George Martin and told him what we, you know, we said, how do you propose to do it? We put it together, you know, it's uh, amazing because like yeah. the, the song is in the key of F and Mick Chudnick, it's the, the slide is so much better in the key of D on, on the guitar and the tune the guitars, we get that intro and we use like a, a detuned guild for the bass part and Mick uses this acoustic guitar of mine, this stretch that I had. We just put a rhythm track together and George added the strings and it was my suggestion that Mick's father was in a mandolin band and I got this mandolin <laughs> off Mick's wall of his apartment and I said, let's use this. And we, we uh, used that on the the mandolin solo. Wow. Uh, Bert Bacharach actually really likes your version as well. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very proud to say that. Apparently he mentions it when he does it on stage. <laughs> The 60s was such a, a shifting time, especially in, in music, and uh, the sound of records continued to sort of change. And it sounds like by, say, 1966, you were getting less support in terms of get songs for you. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you, I sort of like went off the track a bit. Yeah. You know, to me, it was obvious that I wasn't going to get songs from the Beatles forever, you know. And 
let's face it, I've had more than anybody else. And in a way, that's why I went and found little children. But it just became harder, and there was not a, a unity between me and the band to find things and do things. I, I went through a frustrating time, and, and then, funny enough, my, my contract ran out with, with EMI, and Brian Epstein got with me and said, would you like to make a record with Robert Stigler? And Robert had just brought the Bee Gees over, and I got together with Robert. We went through some of their songs, and we picked on a song, Town of Tuxley Toymaker, part one. Wonderful. And I thought, this would be a great one to do. I'd never worked in the studio with like a, a big, like 20 piece, 30 piece orchestra. I recorded it with, with Robert and the Bee Gees. And, uh, you know, I thought it was cool at the time. You know, I think we could have made a better record. What happened with me was that was most, most of the time, you know, you, you make records and you work out the best gear. It was strange to sort of like sit at the piano with the guy and go over the, the song. And, and then, you know, you go in a studio and I found with Town of Stuxley Toymaker, I'd underpitched myself. I think about it in a higher key, it would have made it a more of an impact. But I always thought it didn't have that drive in it. But it was a, a great record to make. And it was great to, to do something with the Bee Gees, you know. They were great. They did an amazing job so quickly. Are they on backing vocals on that as well? Can can I hear them? Yes, they did the vocal backing on it, yes. Yeah, so it's a Bee Gees project with you at the helm, really. Yeah, so I thought that was cool, and the Dakotas didn't like it. (laughs) They were annoyed. Children. 
from RCA Publishing and I went around there one day and he said he said I don't have many songs but I got this interesting thing from America and he had this Harry Nielsen album and nobody had ever heard of Harry Nielsen and I said his name is Derek and I said Derek I said can I borrow it for the weekend he says no it's the only one in the world I said huh. I said I'll take it off you I'll, you know he says please so he, he let me have the record and I took it back to where I was living in London at the time and I played the album all of the weekend. And um, I thought, you know, 1941 would be a great song for me to record. Unfortunately, at the time, you know, Brian had passed. And I spoke with, I think it was Vic Lewis, who was the, the head of NEMS. And he wanted me to do the song, a Tony Randazzo song called World Without Love. Not the Peter and Gordon song, but a different song altogether. And I said, you let me do the Harry Nielsen song, I'll do that as well. I sat down with a, an arranger, Johnny Arthur, and worked out, you know, I said, you know, I want it to be like a Salvation Army type of thing. And we picked out the instruments that we were going to use, and I recorded in 1941. I always thought that was one of the best records I've made. Yeah. But I'll be honest with you, maybe people were fed up with me. I don't know. You can't say, you know, you can't scream at people and say, go out and buy my record. I thought it was a, a good record. I thought I'd put all the work in. And at the end of the day, it's up to the, the public. I also didn't have the big guns of EMI and Brian Epstein behind me. Yeah. But it's a record that I'm proud of. Well, in 1941, a happy father had a son And by 1944, the father walked right out the door And in 45, the mom and son were still alive But who could tell in 46 if the two were to survive? Now the years were passing quickly, but not fast enough for him So he closed his eyes till 55 when he opened them up again when he looked around, he saw a clown, and the clown looked very gay. He said, I'd like to join that circus clown and run away. You're He'd wanted all his 
his view and, and the monkeys that were realizing how great Nielsen was in that early period and in a way you covering that track was ahead of its time really well you know it's funny because like you know there's all the stuff about the Beatles because I remember sort of bumping into Ringo at the Playboy Club Bark Lane and he says that's a great record you made Billy and I went yeah but no one's buying it <laughs> <laughs> I'll just keep on making them you know, I, I got to the point where I thought, you know, as long as you put your heart and soul into the record, it's all in the in the hands of the beholder. You know, there were songs over the years that I've done that I didn't... Looking back now, I don't know why I bothered. They never had it in the first place. There's other songs that I thought did and didn't. It just didn't work, you know. But I think I, I did reach a period well, I just thought, you know, if you give your all and you're sincere about what you're doing, it's just up to the public. I'll be honest with you, I never thought about trends over the years, even even when Flower Power was around. I, I, ne- I never thought about what's hip, what's hip, what can I do to be hip, what can I do to record to be hip. You know, I always just try to, to make good records, you know. I mean, I had a period where, um, I did some stuff in um, in Holland. I did a song with just string bass, guitar, and drums. Uh, it was Rockabilly. Um, I, th- I thought that was a good record. I also, when I recorded the album, I won the fight. I'd also done a song back then called You're Right and Wrong, which I thought was a very tongue-in-cheek. You know, I, I wasn't known for, I think I just, you know, people thought I was just, this nicey, nicey pop singer who sang nice songs and didn't know how to sing rock and roll. So when I recorded the album, uh, I won the fight. I thought it was a good one to do. You can see that sort of pattern in the 70s where you were sporadically releasing tracks, playing the clubs. And by the late late 70s, there's um, back at EMI, a song written by Terry Britton, who's very well-known songwriter, Lawrence Juba from Wings on guitar on Ships That Pass in the Night. If you're going to pick some of the, your 70s work, that's notable track. Well, you know, it, it was, I'll be honest with you, it, it was just a song that I really liked. And I'll be honest with you, there was people around me at the time who, who were like, what are you doing, Billy? And I just said, no, I really like this song. I think I can do a good job. I did another Tony uh, McCauley song, um, San Diego, which is to me was just the old Billy Jay. You know, I thought ships that passed in the night and had the Sapporo saxophone like Baker Street had on it. It was a pleasure to do that. Nothing wrong, we're lovers 
all the time But when we're alone With no eyes to see the play Strangers then sharing rooms With nothing left to say mentioned you're right i'm wrong earlier and we have the version of that track that you recorded for your uh, latest album i won the fight but um in terms of that original recording did you say earlier that was recorded in holland it was recorded in holland yes so funny because i would say at the time i recorded it you know the management people i had around me for some reason a lot of things that i wanted to do they weren't hip to you know but i i was at the point where I like this. I want to do it. It's me, my career. It's what I do. It's good. If people like it, fine. You know, to me, as I call it, you have to stand up and be counted some at some time or other. You know, I wasn't being awkward or temperamental. I just thought I was making good records, and that's what mattered to me. Someone else to say the scene. The first time was the last time it didn't really work. 
said I was a jerk. You're right. You're right. And wrong. I'm wrong. But ooh, please, honey, don't come on too strong. You're right. You're right. And wrong. I'm wrong. But don't make me wait too long. Too long. How did you do the uh, going to bed book? I came home one day and there was a letter in the post. It was from this lady called Sandra Boynton, who I didn't realise at the time. She's the biggest child author there is. And I saw this logo and I said to my wife, I know this person from somewhere. And she said in this letter how, you know, she's written a song. She did books and she with her books, she put CDs, you know, her children's books. I got in touch with her. And she said, me and my people, we've written a song we'd, we'd like to put in my next book. So I went to, uh, it's called Cow Planet. And I said to my wife, I don't know that. I, I got to do this. <laughs> but I went to Sony Studios and met up with her and um, recorded this song called Cow Planet, which was a part of a, a book. And then a while later, she called me up and said, I noticed the way you, you talk when we work together, turning my children's books into apps. And I'd like you to do the narration. And I thought, God, that's, you know, people used to say they didn't understand me, what you want me to narrate books for. So I went to a studio and I narrated this book called The Going to Bed Book. It's out there. It's, you know, they put a lot of, it's, it's cool. I did a whole series 
of Sandra Boynton books I narrated them from, which is some never ever thought I'd do. It must be something with the accent, something with the accent, because you had Ring, Ringo doing Thomas the Tank Engine. And yeah, got- <laughs> I don't know. And it's so funny because I, I had my surgery on one of my toes, and that, that the surgeon was just about to put me under, and he went, you know, I don't like your music, but my kids love your books and want them. To go on to bed. <laughs> it was a, that was an interesting thing to do. through time. No sound. Let's go! We're gonna go fast and we're gonna go far with a steady driving bass and a rhythm guitar. We got a blazing after burning, it's a backbeat drum. Get ready, Cow Planet, now here we come. Cow Planet, whoa, Cow Planet. We're really gonna go to Cow Planet. Exactly where it is, well we don't know yet Listen But we're following the voices on our radio chest And we'll keep on rocking rolling through outer space Listen Till we find, find, find that magical place Cow Planet Whoa! Cow Planet Yeah! We don't care if they're green, we don't care if they're blue We just want them all to sing in the way that they do Telling you now, just as soon as we land, we're gonna add the cows to our rock and roll band. That's it. We're gonna add the cows to our rock and roll band. Yeah, we're gonna add the cows to our rock and roll band. Cow Planet, hey hey, Cow Planet, nothing else can say Cow Planet. We will call the band Utopia. Oh, 
It will be the greatest band ever. Stay tuned. Cow Planet. From deep space. Over and out. Be great to mention another track of yours from I Won the Fight, and that's Sunsets of Santa Fe. So that's where you've been, I think, since mid 1980s. You've been over in uh, in the United States, California way. Funny enough, I'm, I've I've lived in New York right for many years, but I had a place in in Santa Fe. It came about because I, I just not a tour in England, and I was coming home on the plane. I read in in, in the Times that it was the anniversary of that thing I had the Roswell event of when there was they did the cover up of these aliens and I was booked to, to do a gig there and I said to my wife, you know, I'm doing the show there in a couple of weeks. We we traveled to Albuquerque and we drove to Roswell and it was like aliens and it was like a Star Trek convention, you know. Funny enough it was with a guy called Mitch Ryder and Gary Lewis, uh, Jerry Lewis's son. Mitch went on stage and it started to rain which is very unusual though so i never went on but i have pictures of some in the book with aliens it was crazy you know my wife said well what are we going to do so i said somebody told me the food's good in santa fe and we drove to santa fe and fell in love with the place and then we we got a place there and, I, and it was just a neighbor of mine said billy you know don't you ever see this you know you're never around to see the sunsets of Santa Fe, you're here in Bonn. And I went home and I wrote the song Sunsets of Santa Fe on an acoustic guitar. And I sent, funny enough, I sent the track to, to a great friend of mine in Chicago, played Slide. It's amazing, the technology. And I was able to put that together by sending the track to people. Just like I sent the track to Liverpool, Billy Kinsley, who was in the Mersey Beats, the Liverpool Express, did the vocal backups. And I used people that are friends and that put it together in New York. It worked out really well. Of Santa Fe 
I walked into the desert The sun was shining bright It looked just like a movie set One you cannot buy Last night I saw the zobra So tall he touched the sky People shouted, ban him Through the flames I heard his cries No matter how I try Oh, memories pass me by Feel foolish if I cry I often wonder why Why do I try to hide My feelings deep inside Feel foolish if I cry Sunsets of Santa Fe As the sun sets in the sky Why do I try to hide My feelings deep inside Feel foolish if I cry Sunsets of Santa Fe Why do I try to hide My feelings deep inside Feel foolish if I cry Sunsets of Santa Fe Our final track is To Liverpool With Love and it's nice to get a shout out for, for Liverpool, your your roots and the help that you gave getting Brian Epstein into the Hall of Fame. I, funny enough, it was like the 50th anniversary of the British invasion. And I was about to do a show in New York for it. I came home, I used to go to New Mexico with my wife. And I came back from New Mexico and I said, you know, I'm going to buy a new guitar. She said, well... I bought you one, you haven't played it for 25 years. I said, no. So, funny enough, I went into a music store for the first time in years, and I bought this guitar, and I sat down and thought, I'm I'm determined to write a song in commemoration. I sat and I thought, you know, I'm going to do this just as if I was doing a Buddy Holly song, because I thought people were doing heavy rock, and instead of three chords, they were doing five and stuff like that. You know, I had this feeling that the rock and roll world had totally left Brian Epstein out in the cold. And I thought it was, I really, I really thought it was an injustice. I wrote Liverpool with Love, which 
kind of autobiographical, and it mentioned in it, why isn't Brian Epstein in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? At the time, I was doing a lot of these Beatle yeah. fests, and it got popular with the fans around the fests. And um, thankfully, I'm told it helped get Brian into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was a great feeling. I, you know, it's, it's funny because since that, that period, I found that, you know, it's great to get to a place where you, believe it or not, enjoy your work more. I've had a, a long career. I've had ups and downs like everybody. It's great to be able to put that behind me and still enjoy doing what I've done my whole life. In fact, I get more enjoyment now than, than I ever did. You know, I've just started recording a new album. I'm halfway through it, and I, I did it in Nashville, which is what I've always wanted to do. I just like to keep on as long as I can doing what I do. Fantastic. So it sounds like not only can people look back with uh, your autobiography, they can look forward and, and await your new album, and I think that they, they can uh, they can keep an eye on things on uh, billyjkramer.com. Yes, you know, I mean, as I say, you know, I won the fight. Funny enough, it was the first project where I did the whole thing by myself. Yeah, it's so funny because I it, it, originally I was just Liverpool was love, Sunset Santa Fe, and then all different songs kept rolling in, and I got all these songs together. And one day I said, you know, I just need to type a song to tie all this together. I, I'm not known as a prolific songwriter, but I sat down with a bass player I called Don Salenza and wrote. I won the fight right off the cuff. I changed a few words later that night. I guess that's what it's all about, you know. As I say, you know, you go through all that insanity of the 60s. You go through the rejection you suffer afterwards. I used to drink a lot. I quit that. I go over that. And, you know, and I just thought, yeah, I have won the fight. And, and I'm happy at the end of the place. I'm married to a good lady, you know, and I have a good life, you know. So it's cool. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Billy. I, I can't say how much a, a privilege it's been. I've been listening to your music since I was a since I was a baby. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it's been such a privilege to to hear from you and and, and your stories today, and, and spread the word on, on on your music and future projects as well. So thank you. Yeah, and uh, everybody can get "I Won the Fight" is still on my website. And, um, do you want to know a secret of my book? And I look forward to hearing from people. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Bye-bye.
bother me No one could explain But finally Brian Epstein Is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.